Some very quick housekeeping before we start. June 15th, Transition AI Boston. I hope to see you there. It's our one-day conference in downtown Boston, digging deep into the applications for artificial intelligence in the energy system. We're going to have panels, networking, a workshop. We've got a bunch of people there from utilities, large corporates, startups, uh, venture capital firms. Uh, definitely the place to be to learn about where this space is headed. And you, our listeners, get a 20% discount. So if you follow the link in the show notes, you can use PS Pods 20 when you buy your ticket. And also, if uh, you're in the West Coast, you're in the Seattle region, June 28th, our friends at Canary Media are hosting Canary Media Live Seattle. And uh, it's going to be at the legendary radio station KEXP in downtown Seattle. There's going to be, again, panels, lively networking, some live recordings, and you can go to canarymedia.com slash Seattle to get your tickets today. Now here's the show. From the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. House members and senators have been in session all day and they still are tonight. The state constitution requires them to meet every two years for 140 days, no more, no less. Tomorrow is day 140, so the session must end then. So a lot of people this Memorial Day weekend in the U.S. were grilling hanging out outside. I take it you spent a lot of your time indoors watching the Texas legislature close out its final hours of the session? You know, every two years they ruin my Memorial Day weekend uh, like clockwork. So yes, I'm afraid I was uh, watching live feeds, um, watching Twitter on the phone with sources and hearing about uh, all the machinations behind the scenes. Chris Tomlinson spent 20 years covering politics, economics, and conflicts from 30 countries with the Associated Press. Today, he's a business columnist for the Houston Chronicle, covering a state that's sort of like its own country inside the U.S. And I write about uh, money, politics, and life in Texas. The Memorial Day holiday kicks off the unofficial start of summer in America. It also marks the end of a legislative sprint in Texas. And this year was particularly eventful. Obviously, the the strangest was the unprecedented impeachment of our attorney general, Ken Paxton. A majority of Texas House Republicans voted to impeach one of their own Saturday. The resolution is adopted. Acting to oust the state's attorney general, Ken Paxton. He put the interests of himself above the laws of the state of Texas. And within 48 hours, they had impeached him and sent articles of impeachment to the Senate for a trial. That was last Saturday. And that all happened in the middle of this push to pass bills on border security, property taxes, school choice, and culture war issues like restricting drag shows, limiting transgender care, and eliminating diversity initiatives at state schools. Then on Sunday, a bunch of stuff that we thought was dead, bills concerning energy in particular and business in general, were resurrected when uh, the members of the legislature suspended the Constitution to get some last-minute measures passed. Some Texas senators unveiled plans today to shift the focus away from wind and solar and toward resources like natural gas, all part of nine bills Texas lawmakers announced aimed at shoring up the state's power grid. So lots of drama, uh, lots of late nights. Texas is a state where Republicans dominate every part of government. The governor's office, secretary of state, attorney general, both legislative chambers. It's been that way for two decades. 
It also happens to be a state with the most wind and utility-scale solar development in the country. And over their 20 years of dominance, Republicans in the state have mostly supported renewables, often in a very warm way. But lately, they've turned. Well, renewable energy has two problems. In the minds of many Texas Republicans, it's part of the woke agenda, and that it's a plot to destroy the oil and gas industry in Texas. And the other problem is kind of counterintuitive. Republicans were very successful at attracting wind and solar to their state. So successful, the growth took them by surprise and definitely raised alarm among their main donors. They have uh, taken a huge chunk of the market away from coal, and they're cutting into natural gas's uh, market share for providing electricity to the state. And there are oil and gas guys who uh, really don't want to give up anything else. In a very short period of time, America's fastest-growing renewables state became the most hostile. One of the proposals was to mandate that 50% of Texas energy must come from fossil fuels. Uh, That measure didn't pass, but it kind of set the tone for what followed. So what happened? This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, the history and political fads that are driving the Texas renewables backlash. We'll talk with the Houston Chronicle's Chris Tomlinson about how much it could unravel the market. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, cost, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com events. To understand what's happening now, we have to go back almost 25 years ago to the late 90s when Republican Governor George W. Bush signed a law that promoted thousands of megawatts of wind in Texas. And then the Republican governor after George W. Bush, Rick Perry, backed a law that would leverage 10 gigawatts of wind. Sometimes people ask me, so what is the best energy strategy for Texas? You know, is it wind? Is it biomass? Is it uh, clean coal? Is it next generation nuclear? And I'm just shaking my head and I'm saying, yes, all of the above. And and those two guys set in motion this boom in Texas for renewables that surpassed all expectations. And this was not until recently considered part of the woke agenda. What has happened in the years since? Well, it's, it's the energy marketplace, right? Because... In the late 1990s, early 2000s, it appeared that the Permian Basin was running dry. We weren't going to be able to produce that much oil. The natural gas was running out. A company called Chenier was building a natural gas import facility on the Gulf Coast to bring natural gas from Qatar. Uh, It was going to cost Texans a huge amount of money. And 
we realize that the one thing Texas has is a lot of wind and a lot of uh, sunlight. And wind, of course, was the first technology to be able to produce energy at a, a reasonable rate. You also had the federal uh, tax incentives, the production tax credit that helped to bring down the cost of uh, wind energy. So, sure, I mean, it was a Republican national security issue to produce energy at home and not rely on imports. But a guy named George Mitchell from here in Houston perfected uh, hydraulic fracturing, which was able to go into the source rock, shatter the shale that that created oil and gas and bring even more oil and gas out of the ground than anyone ever thought was imaginable. Uh, That crashed the price of both oil and natural gas in Texas and set off a fierce competition between uh, natural gas and renewables to supply electricity to the state of Texas. And renewables have held their own. Texas now builds more wind farms and utility-scale solar projects than any state in the country. What has been the impact, the economic impact of renewables across the state? Well, you know, the Texas Consumer Association says that we saved about $31 billion on our electricity bills over the last decade, thanks to wind and solar. That's not counting uh, the trillion or so dollars that have been invested in constructing these plants and uh, developing them across the state. And for this, we have the Republican mindset to thank. I mean, Texas is a low-regulation state. We don't have a lot of permitting rules. We have almost no federal lands whatsoever. Everything is owned by the state or private individuals. And it's just dead easy to build here. You add on to that the grid operated by the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. uh, We call it ERCOT. The ERCOT grid is uh, wide open. Anyone who can generate can, can come to Texas and generate and sell electricity. And it's a competitive wholesale market. So the light regulation, the wide open laissez-faire approach to electricity markets really allowed um, renewables to take off here. And so that's why you have major corporations like Facebook, Amazon, you know, Microsoft, Google, all coming to Texas, building, you know, signing power purchase agreements to support massive renewables development. Things started to take a turn in 2021, February, when a deep freeze knocked out huge amounts of generation offline. It created multi-day blackouts for millions of people. It put the grid within minutes of collapse. And all forms of generation in Texas were debilitated, but it was largely gas infrastructure, the wells, pipelines, power plants that failed. But out of the debacle, you had Governor Greg Abbott blaming renewables first and foremost. So this shows how the Green New Deal would be a deadly deal for the United States of America. As a result, uh, it just shows uh, that fossil fuel is necessary uh, for the state of Texas as well as other states. How did the distortions begin? Well, I mean, I've traced that back to the Texas Oil and Gas Association. They had a spokesman who tweeted out an image of a helicopter spraying a liquid onto a wind turbine. And the caption was, a fossil fuel-powered helicopter sprays fossil fuels on a clean energy device to generate electricity. 
Now, of course, the image was not from Texas. It was a three-year-old image from Sweden. The helicopter was not spraying a fossil fuel, a uh, uh, de-icing liquid. It was spraying water uh, to clean a wind turbine. And it had absolutely nothing to do with the Texas grid crash. But it was shocking to me as a reporter covering the minute-by-minute developments of the blackouts to see just the instantaneous activation of the oil and gas industry to place the blame on renewables. And I think it's because they knew they were to blame. And the Texas Railroad Commission, which is uh, an elected body whose sole job in life is to regulate oil and gas, they are all financed by the oil and gas industry. And they also took the lead in denouncing renewables as being at fault. It was coordinated. It was planned. There was no no doubt in anyone's mind that this was a, a disinformation campaign. So that brings us up to the most recent legislative session. Uh, the tally, I saw one tally that showed there were 171 bills at one point uh, that were introduced that would affect renewables or the electricity market. A common thread in much of the nine-bill package announced Thursday is reducing support for renewable energy resources like wind and solar while trying to boost more resources known as dispatchable, like natural gas. You have the Republican-dominated government putting all these bills forward, many of them making it almost impossible to build renewables in the state. Can you characterize that frenzy of legislation? What was some of the most extreme stuff you saw, and how did it start to shake out? Well, I mean, there was one bill to ban all future renewable energy development. One of my other favorites was a bill to forbid ERCOT from purchasing power from offshore wind facilities. Those were outliers. There there were posturing bills that gave lawmakers a chance to issue a press release, and they never went anywhere. The big, nasty bill that was you know, still alive as of Saturday until it was ripped out by negotiators was something called Senate Bill 624. And it creates a list of places where if a wind farm is within 10 miles or a solar facility is within five miles of one of these places, and it's every historic site, every river, every state forest, every state park. I mean, essentially, when you get done with the list, it covers the entire state. Um, And says that if you want to build something within the the state of Texas, you basically have to go through an extremely onerous and expensive permitting process that would allow anyone living within 50 miles to effectively block the development of that facility. And we know where that comes from. It's a coalition of wealthy landowners. Uh, It's the Bass Brothers from Fort Worth. It's uh, Dan Friedkin, who's a Hollywood producer and and banker. We know about the, the folks down in South Texas. These are people who own hobby ranches, really beautiful fake ranches where they have a few cows and they have a bunch of trees and pasture and a really nice view from a multi-million dollar house. And these people really do not want to see a wind turbine on the horizon. They don't want to see a solar farm 
anywhere from their property. They definitely don't want to see any new transmission lines go up. And they donate a huge amount of money to the lawmakers in the legislature. And they were pushing this bill hard because it basically was a measure that would allow them to keep their views. It's really that simple. Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com events or click the link in the show notes. And then there are some other pieces of the legislation around um, interconnection and capacity requirements. Can you explain those as well? Sure. So one measure, that did, two measures that passed that are going to hurt the renewable industry. One is the cost of transmission lines. Up until now, um, connecting a wind farm to the grid through transmission lines was covered by all the ratepayers everywhere in the state. Now, if your wind facility or solar facility is more than a certain distance from, from the interconnect, you're, you're going to have to pay for those extra miles to connect. And it's about a million dollars a mile to run a transmission line in Texas. Uh, that's going to put significant cost on new facilities because, frankly, all the places convenient to interconnection, they're already taken. Um, the second thing that's going to happen with every new facility after January 1, 2027, is something called a firming requirement. And what this says is that when supplies are super, super tight for electricity, the Public Utilities Commission is going to assign every generator by portfolio, not by individual facility, but by their portfolio of facilities, a certain amount of electricity they're expected to produce in an emergency. And if you're a wind or solar facility and you're not confident you're going to be able to supply that quota of power in an emergency, you're expected to go find it somewhere else. You can either build a battery uh, facility and provide your quota that way, or you have to go out and contract with a uh, natural gas facility that's going to give you your power, that you're required to provide the grid. This is going to be really expensive. Uh, it's also going to be highly political because we don't know yet what the PUC will assign to different facilities, but it will definitely slow down new investment in Texas, renewable energy. So what about those uh, gas plants that failed during an emergency? Do they have any requirements? Uh, well, yes, they do. They do. There have been weatherization requirements on the gas facilities, and there are new inspections. 
but, you know, there is some question what the problem really was, because a lot of those gas facilities that shut down was for lack of gas, not because the facilities broke. Right, because the pipes and wells froze. Well, I mean, no? there's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the official excuse. But there's a lawsuit right now uh, that looks at uh, pipeline flow data that accuses the pipeline companies of withholding gas in order to drive, to drive up prices. Because Texas is the only state in the country where pipelines get to own the gas inside the pipeline. And it allows pipeline generators to manipulate prices. So, you know, we're still investigating exactly what caused the blackouts. Uh, but there, you know, yes, there was some wells froze up. Yes, some power plants broke down because they just, you know, they're old and they break. But a more interesting question is why did the gas pipelines that had plenty of gas in storage, why could they not deliver the gas where it was needed, when it was needed? It may have been partially due to uh, manipulation. Okay, so you're pulling your head up after this marathon session over the weekend. Um, we It seems like we averted a worst-case scenario in Texas. The, the, the permitting piece has been stripped out, but you still have these interconnection requirements and the firming requirements. How bad is it? Uh, you, you, when you and I talked before the weekend and you said this could either kneecap renewables or it could annihilate them, where are we on that spectrum? We're at kneecap. We're at kneecap. Um, you know, I talked to some renewable advocates who told me that this is probably the best they could have help, hoped for um, and that, you know, with when we started this session, the lieutenant governor was absolutely committed to destroying renewable energy in Texas, and it's going to survive. And so, sure, it, they, they were not annihilated. On the other hand, you know, they passed a lot of unnecessary laws. They are giving natural gas generators $9 billion a year in subsidies uh, to help them compete with renewables. So yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be tough going. The interesting thing is that these laws will likely boost battery storage. You know, we've got 80 gigawatts of battery storage in the queue to interconnect into the ERCOT grid at, right now. A lot of these laws will make that battery storage even more economical, even if it's going to hurt future wind and solar projects. It's going to be really interesting to see whether or not these bills actually accomplish what the lawmakers intended. How does public opinion around renewables square with the political reaction? Well, you know, the Texas legislature has very little concern for Texas public opinion, what they really care about is the Republican primary voter. You know, the Republican brand is strong in Texas. Uh, the Democratic brand uh, is non-existent. We have one of the lowest voter turnouts in the country. And we have very disciplined Republican primary voters. So once you win the Republican primary, the general election doesn't matter in Texas. It just... it. it Democrats can't win outside of a few legislative districts. You know, and the Republican primary voter watches Fox, and Fox tells them that renewables are evil. 
I think generally across the state, the average Texan supports uh, renewables. I think the last poll I saw showed something like 70% approval for clean energy and the desire to build more of it. But, you know, what the general public wants uh, never translates into what the Texas legislature does when it's in session. And it speaks to a lot of the weird contradictions we have in national politics as well. Uh, You know, the bulk of IRA spending is going to happen in Republican states. Uh, Over 80% of renewables are installed in Republican districts around the country. Most of the manufacturing through the IRA is going to happen in Republican districts. Meanwhile, under the, the previous debt ceiling negotiations, Republicans had a package to essentially strip all funding from the IRA, uh, even though they w- their states would be beneficiaries. And in Texas in particular, you know, we have um, this bet on a clean domestic resource that turned out to be wildly cost-effective and very helpful to local economies and to landowners and farmers. But this combination of anti-green national narratives and the oil and gas industry and wealthy landowners are now threatening it. What do you think this extreme reaction in Texas says about the forces against clean energy nationally? Politicians follow fad and fashion like any of the rest of us, you know, and the fad and fashion right now has been to bash clean energy and blame it for all the, the, the problems with the grid and, and to create panic and, the winter storm, Yuri, was an opportunity to sow fear because at the end of the day, Republican politics really are about fear. I don't think there's anything fundamental about conservatism that opposes uh, clean energy. I, I said, I just, I think it's a, it's a fad uh, because you're right. If you go out to West Texas, uh, where farmers and ranchers have these facilities on their land, they are as excited about that mailbox money as they were about the oil and gas mailbox money. These people have been leasing their land for energy purposes for, you know, a, a, a hundred years. This is part of the culture out there. And eventually, uh, as it grows larger and more important, and as a older generation of oil and gas donor dies off, it's going to shift. Uh, We also have the small issue of all the top drilling locations are beginning to be used up. We are running out of proven reserves in what we call tier one assets. So the cheapest, easiest oil and gas to obtain has been been drilled. You know, that, that gas, oil and gas is coming out of the ground. All the new fields are going to be more expensive, more difficult. Uh, The price of labor is going up. The price of supplies are going up. So as we see natural gas prices rise, as they inevitably will over the next five to 10 years, we'll also see renewables become more popular as uh, conservative politicians try to save consumers money. Chris Tomlinson, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. 
And that's the show. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. The episode was produced by me with support from Dalvin Abouage. Sean Marquand's our engineer. Original music came from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a VC firm that partners with startups and entrepreneurs to address climate change across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. And do us a favor and go give us a review at Apple, Spotify, or the platform of your choice. And we are so grateful for helping us out and for listening to this show. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. We'll catch you next time.